In my last episode, I talked about the well-known phrase, pick up your cross. I explained this statement was made by Jesus before he went to the cross. Jesus fulfilled this command for us as he's fulfilled all the requirements of the law by picking up our cross and dying in our place. Today, we don't pick up our cross to be worthy of the Lord. Instead, the Bible says we are crucified with Christ. He gave his life for us, and in him, we have a brand new life. We can gladly give up our old lives, even denying what we once wanted out of life, because he's given us something much, much better. But that brings up another important question. So I refuted what some people teach, that carrying your cross means you must suffer and sacrifice to be worthy of the Lord. I rejected that form of teaching that turns the new covenant of grace into a works-based religion. Christianity is not a religion of works. We don't earn anything from God. We receive from him grace upon grace. And because of that, we are changed. But does that mean there is no place in a Christian's life for sacrifice? What does it mean for a child of God who is born again to sacrifice? Someone who is standing in grace, God's unmerited favor. In the Old Covenant, Israel was constantly offering up sacrifices to God. Day and night, the priests sacrificed animals to atone for the nation's sin. So sacrifice, according to the Bible, is when something is offered up to God as a payment for a person's sin. Since the only legitimate payment for sin is death, something has to be killed. But as Christians, we don't offer up those kinds of sacrifices. Jesus Christ offered himself up for us. He atoned for sins once and for all. We don't need to sacrifice lambs or goats to be forgiven by God. Those who believe in Jesus Christ are totally forgiven. Our sins have been washed away because our sacrifice was the greatest anyone could offer, the very Son of God. But the New Testament still uses the word sacrifice, right? So we can conclude appropriately that we are supposed to sacrifice in some way something to God. But does that mean what some people think it means? That sacrificing to God as a Christian means we have to give up something we love to prove our loyalty to him. Does that mean we are not sacrificing to God unless we are going through some kind of painful experience? Is denying ourselves, making ourselves miserable, or generally being sad or depressed part of what it means to sacrifice for the Lord? Let's take a look at what the Bible has to say. I'm Adam Castellino, and this is the Gospel Talker Podcast. So where did this idea of sacrifice come from? As I said, the concept of sacrificing comes from the Old Testament. Before Christ came, humanity, all of humanity, had to kill something to be right with God. This was going on long before the nation of Israel was founded. Abel offered up sacrifices to God, as did Noah and Abraham. From the moment Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, it was required by humans to make sacrifice to God. 
So why did this happen? Let's look at the very beginning when man and woman first sinned. Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So this is where the need for sacrifice first originates, with the very first original sin. And this passage actually explains why there's a need for sacrifice. So Adam and his wife believed the temptation of Satan and they ate the fruit God told them not to eat. And we see that the Bible says their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. Well, why does this matter? Well, before this, they were naked, but they were not ashamed because they had no knowledge of why being naked should be shameful. But when they disobeyed God and ate from this tree, they suddenly gained knowledge of both good and evil. They now realize what it meant to be naked in the eyes of an evil person. Instantly, this brought on shame. Shame is a sense of dirtiness or wrong. It's the realization that you have done something wrong and are, in a sense, unclean. And, of course, the reaction to this in a human is an attempt to try to cover up the shame, hide it, mask it, because it's an internal thing that you can't really wash away. If your hands get dirty, you just run them over water, get some soap, and they're clean. But shame is happening on the inside, and you can't get rid of it. So the immediate instinct of a person, not just Adam and Eve, but us, is to try to just cover it up, pretend like it's not there. And we see that's what they did. Their shame was extending from the fact that they were naked. Now they know that naked can be a bad thing. So they try to cover up their bodies with fig leaves, hoping this would fix the problem. But we know that's not the problem. Shame is something happening on the inside. They knew they betrayed God, disobeyed him, and it's an internal problem. So it wasn't really their bodies that were the problem. You know, fig leaves are really big if you've ever seen a fig tree. And so it's natural for Adam and Eve to think, well, these are big enough to cover up the parts of us that we don't want people to see. Well, that was pretty foolish because fig leaves, just like any other leaves, begin to dry up the moment you cut them from a tree. They might have covered Adam and Eve's bodies for a little while, but guess what? They're going to crumble up and blow away and then they're back to square one. You see, this is a picture of our attempts at righting our wrongs. When we think we can do something to fix the wrong that we've done, to cover up our shame, it's just as silly as wearing fig leaves for clothing. You see, our works are woefully inadequate to fix this problem. And just like leaves, they'll crumble up and blow away almost immediately. But why do I say this attempt by Adam and Eve was inadequate? Because when God appeared, they ran and hid. Adam admitted to God that he ran away because he was naked. But wait a minute, he was wearing fig leaves. Wasn't that enough? The fact they had to run and hide proved their efforts to fix their mistake 
were not good enough, not even close. Because the problem was on the inside. It had little to do with their actual nakedness. God made Adam and Eve, right? Think about it. He knew them inside and out. He's not ashamed of their nakedness. He made them naked to begin with. Adam ran because of the deeper problem inside his heart. His external works, making fig clothes, weren't adequate of fixing his heart, which was now stained by shame. Adam and Eve sinned, and the immediate result was this sense of shame, this inner awareness that they've done wrong. We sometimes say, oh, I feel guilty, but that's not exactly right. Guilt isn't a feeling. Guilt is a legal standing. A judge has to pronounce guilt on you. And that's what came next when God confronted them. In the next few verses, verses 14 through 19 of Genesis 3, God pronounces judgment against man, woman, and the serpent. That's when they received this guilt. They broke God's word, and now they had to face a certain punishment. Because Adam and Eve disobeyed, there was a variety of penalties that God pronounced over them. And these penalties we are still dealing with today. And it's often called the curse of sin and death. Because Adam sinned, every human being born from him is born spiritually dead. We have no power within ourselves to properly obey God and erase the stain of our sin. And we are destined to die physically as a result of that. But if we look back at this story, we see even in this moment, God shows them mercy. Now, we know he had a plan to remove this stain of guilt and shame through Christ one day. But that day wasn't there. So what's going to happen between that day Adam and Eve sinned until the day of Christ? God said, when you sinned, you're going to die. But they didn't die. That's because in that moment, God made a provision for Adam and Eve to assuage their shame and put a hold on their guilty verdict. Genesis 3.21 says this, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So God was the one who killed two animals, could have been sheep based on size, to clothe Adam and Eve. He provided something much better to cover up their nakedness than what they came up with. Now, if you think about it, God could have came to them and explained to them, Listen, You don't have to be ashamed. I made you this way. You don't have to feel bad about being naked. Just relax. And and we assume that God, maybe he could have done something to explain it to them. But shame was an internal issue that would take the power of God one day to erase fully. For shame to go away, you need to be fully convinced that you're forgiven. So in that moment, Adam and Eve weren't ready for that because Christ had not yet come. So God had to provide something that would both put aside that immediate penalty of death but then also provide a means of comfort so they wouldn't feel ashamed in that moment. And that's what this sacrifice did. It did both those things. The animals died instead of Adam and Eve, and then their skins provided a way to cover their shame. So we see both guilt and shame are being addressed by God. In the future, of course, Adam and Eve would make clothes, and this would be, for the most part, a temporary kind of superficial means of covering our shame. Because that only covers one kind of shame, your nakedness. But when you commit other sins, wearing clothes doesn't fix the job, does it? 
So the eradication of shame won't come until Jesus Christ comes and we're told in the Word of God that when we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Shame cannot be lifted until you recognize and understand God has washed away all your sin. But in the moment, God is providing a means for Adam and Eve not to die. He said, if you eat of this fruit, you're going to die. But instead, He passed that judgment onto to animals so that they died in their place for that offense. Even in their darkest moment, God was providing for these two. Adam and Eve did not deserve garments from God. He actually was showing them kindness despite their lack of worthiness. Does that sound familiar? Even here, God is showing grace to unworthy sinners. So if you followed my other podcasts, you know I care very much about grace, and I'm going to keep talking about grace as much as I can. But Christians often misunderstand the fact about grace. They think it's only a covering for sin, which it's not. It's unmerited favor from God. Everything received from God in Christ is on the basis of grace. But sometimes people think that grace only started through Christ. No, God showed grace from the very beginning. When the Jews were under the law, it required obedience to the law, but God still showed them grace quite often. The covenant wasn't of grace, it was of law, but God, who is abounding in loving kindness, grace, frequently showed them grace. And in Christ, we have a covenant of grace that cannot be put aside, cannot be undermined, cannot be dissolved because of our failings. It's because it's purchased through the blood of Christ. So our covenant with God is permanent because there's nothing that can undo the work that Christ did. So grace is the basis of our relationship with God in Jesus. But all the way back here with Adam and Eve, God was showing them kindness they did not deserve. He told them, if you eat this fruit, on that day you will die. And technically speaking, they did die. Spiritual death came to them. Okay, shame was a symptom of this spiritual death. All right, if you want a more thorough, detailed explanation of spiritual death, read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through the end of the chapter. Paul goes into great detail describing what spiritual death looks like. Okay, it includes darkness, it includes hard-heartedness to God, it includes rebellion against God, and a greater and greater desire for sin. But on that day, Adam and Eve didn't physically die because God, in his grace and mercy, provided two animals to die in their place. Those animals were the very first sacrifices made on behalf of sinful people. Adam and Eve should have died because of their sins. Their removal from the garden represented their spiritual death. They were no longer in this right relationship with God, which was represented by the Garden of Eden. So that's their spiritual death, their eviction from God's favor, from his righteousness in the garden. But they didn't physically die because God killed those two animals. So we see at the very start, sacrifice is when something else is killed on our behalf so that we do not face the punishment we deserved for that sin, which is death. And notice, God provided the very first sacrifices for humanity. This wasn't an idea that Adam and Eve came up with. They didn't say, oh God, please forgive us, we'll kill these animals. It didn't even occur to them that that was a possibility. In fact, it was God who, we could say, invented sacrifice as a means save human beings. Without those sacrifices, they would have died, but those animals died in their place. So God was establishing a pattern. If something dies in your place, it's taking the punishment you deserve. 
And notice the fact that God provided the first sacrifice is actually a shadow of the final sacrifice that was made on our behalf. That one God provided as well, his own son, Jesus Christ, who died for us and then rose again, proving he is the Messiah. So here we see Adam and Eve are now kicked out of the garden. They no longer enjoy this perfect fellowship with God. But that doesn't mean they can't still seek God. Paul says in Acts 17, God created humanity and all the different groups of people around the world so that they might seek him. Paul said to Gentiles that God wants us to seek for him or grope for him, even though he's not far from every one of us. That was true even before the coming of Christ. So during Adam and Eve's day, they could have still sought the Lord and knew him on some level and prayed to him and asked him for help. The only thing stopping that was their sin, the guilt pronounced over them because of their disobedience. That was like a wedge between them and God. Guilt as a result of sin was this separation, was this conflict, what we call enmity between people and God. Something has to be done to deal with that guilt so that Adam and Eve and their children could pray, from, pray to God, hear from him, seek his guidance, his help. But as you're probably beginning to see, guilt can't be wiped away with good works. That doesn't even work in our justice system. If someone commits a crime, they, they can't go to the judge and say, well, judge, yes, I, I robbed that bank, but you know, I also volunteer at a soup kitchen every Sunday, so doesn't that really balance it out? It doesn't work that way. The judge says, that's nice that you volunteered a soup kitchen, you still broke the law, and you still have to be punished for that by going to jail. Okay, addition doesn't result in subtraction, right? I'm not very good at math, but addition and subtraction are two different things. And so doing something can't remove something bad you've done. That's why good works can never save you, because it can't remove the guilt from what you've done wrong. The Bible says the wages of sin are death. So something has to die as a result of the guilt. So Adam and Eve and their descendants had to offer up some kind of sacrifice in order to avoid the consequences of their guilt before God. And because a lamb or a goat or a bull are just simple animals, they're not enough to fully wipe away your guilt. It's only a temporary covering. Remember, God killed those animals to cover Adam and Eve. So that's the picture of a sacrifice. It's a temporary covering. Okay, the skin garments God gave Adam and Eve weren't going to last forever, right? They lasted much longer and much more uh, adequate than fig leaves because they were animal skins. But they would eventually have to be replaced. Earthly sacrifices are temporary. But that was the pattern set in place by God. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 4, we see Abel, the son of Adam and Eve, continues this pattern. He probably learned it from his parents. And he raised flocks, and then he offered some of those flocks, the fat of the flocks, to God. He would have burned them in a sacrifice. He could have done that every day. He may have done that every time uh, the new sheep were born as a thanksgiving to God. He would offer up some of the sheep to God. Whenever he wanted to ask God for help or direction, he would have done that. Because as a sinner, he couldn't go to God and simply say, Hey God, I need help. Because there was that guilt that separated him from God. Now Cain was condemned 
not because he didn't make a sacrifice. It's because he offered up the wrong kind of sacrifice. He grew crops and he offered some of those crops to God. But nothing died to deal with the guilt that he had before God. We read later on in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, that Noah also offered up sacrifices to God. Okay, he came out of the ark after the flood, and the Bible says he offered up some sacrifices, animal sacrifices. Yes, he just saved all those animals, but he took a few of them and killed them. He didn't just take two of each kind. He took more because of this very reason. And this offering was to thank God for saving the human race and also to atone for Noah and his family's sin. We see in Job chapter 1, verse 5, he offers up sacrifices for himself and for his children. Abraham built altars and offered up sacrifices all throughout his life. And then that pattern, of course, continued at the giving of the law to Israel through Moses. In fact, the concept of sacrifice was developed much more under the law. There were a variety of different kinds of sacrifices, different animals to be offered up at different uh, circumstances at different times of the year. There were guilt offerings. There were peace offerings. They even offered up sacrifices of, of wine and flour and bread. Okay, that wasn't to atone for sin because there was no blood, but that was a way of thanking God and that those bread and wine would go to the priests. And believe it or not, even Gentile society offered up sacrifices. This is how common and, uh, and universal sacrifices became. Now, in the case of Gentile nations, they were worshiping false gods. But they still understood that something had to be given to the gods before they can ask for their help. Now, these people were in spiritual darkness, as we know. And they turned away from the true God. And they created gods after their own liking, as Paul explains in Romans 1 but they still understood the importance of a sacrifice. So how does that concept relate today? If Gentiles back in ancient times offered up their own sacrifices to false gods, do people in the world today who don't worship the true God through Christ offer up sacrifices? Well, there are religions that still do it, of course, but even secular people in America still make sacrifices. They might not kill a sheep or a goat, but they do kill something in order to receive something else. People even use the term sacrifice figuratively, or the idea is implied when they talk about achieving some big goal. If you want to succeed in business, you need to devote time, energy, and resources to growing that business. Now, those resources are being used to achieve a goal. Which means, by default, those resources are not being used in some other way. That's a sacrifice. Many people sacrifice time, energy, and resources that they could have spent on family, friends, or other pursuits to build their careers or business. In fact, the word devote is connected to sacrifice. In the Bible, when Israel devoted something to God, it meant they were going to give that thing to him. In other words, they're going to sacrifice it. And even today, we mean the same thing when we devote energy, resources, attention, time to a goal. We are sacrificing those things in order to get what we want. People of this world sacrifice many things to get something they want. They see it as part of the process to achieve a goal. But they don't see, 
quite often how that goal is a kind of false god. It doesn't have to be a literal god for them to want to worship it. Some people even sacrifice tremendous amounts of time and money to get the perfect body. So I remember about a year and a half of my life, I attended a CrossFit gym with my wife. This is a very dark period of my life. Uh, We only went three days a week because that's all we could afford, both in time and money. But there were people in that gym who were there every day. That meant they were spending a lot of money a month to attend daily classes. And not only did they attend the hour-long class, but a lot of them showed up before the class began to warm up and to just do their own personal exercise. Then they would do the class for an hour, and then they would spend time after the class to do other kind of stretching and what they call cool down. Now, exercise is perfectly fine, but there were some people who were so devoted to having the perfect body that it became a god in and of itself. And they were willing to sacrifice time and money to please this god. Now, some of them had families and other responsibilities, but they dedicated three, four, five hours a day to sacrifice in order to appease this god of their mind. People will sacrifice nearly anything to get something they want. And the thing that they want, even though they don't realize it, is a false god. It's something they think can provide for them, something only God, the true God, can provide. That could be health, that could be self-esteem from having a fit body. They might fear getting old and sick and they think the God of health and beauty will keep them alive. But they're chasing after something they cannot attain, eternal life. Only God gives eternal life through his son Jesus. And I bet you can see the pattern played out for an endless number of false gods. People want fame and money and sex and power and youth and beauty and on and on. And they are willing to kill something important to them to get those goals. They'll kill their wallet, their calendar, relationships, even families. In some cases, people literally kill the child in their womb to avoid the burden of raising a child so they can have a life they want. Oh yes, I went there. Abortion is a form of child sacrifice. People offer up this human being to the false god of having sex without consequences and what they think is a burden-free life. Now that's really dark, I know, but this shows us that sacrifice is ingrained in human nature. Even those who don't worship the true god understand this ritual, and they do it every day to get the things they want. But what about Christians? Sacrificing, as we've seen, was instituted by God to atone for sin, meaning something has to die in our place so we don't face the punishment we deserve. If we want to go before God, we can't because we are guilty of breaking his righteous standard. So a sacrifice is necessary to pay for that wrong so we can go to God and pray and seek his help and know him. Under the Old Covenant, Israel was constantly offering up sacrifices because in the end, as we said, an animal cannot properly atone for sin. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So why did they do it? Well, it was simply a temporary measure. God was providing it out of grace, as we said. 
but this was never meant to be the permanent means by which people could be restored to fellowship with God. Our sins need to be forgiven. That is bigger than simply covering up guilt. Forgiveness means sins are totally wiped out and forgotten. A sheep can't do that for us. All those old covenant sacrifices were in fact just a shadow pointing to the true thing. Jesus Christ. He went to the cross to pay for our sins and properly atone for our wrongs. You see, a lamb can't really die in your place. They don't understand God's righteousness, nor can they understand the pain you suffer because of guilt and shame. But Christ did. He became a man to experience exactly what you go through. He bore your guilt and shame on the cross, suffering in your place. Because he was the sinless Lamb of God, and he could become the perfect sacrifice for all humanity. He didn't have to atone for his own sin, and there, so there was no conflict between him and the Father. Which means he was able to bear all of our sin in his body. Nothing was lacking when he died in our place. We don't have to keep offering up the blood of animals anymore, hoping it will be enough. God offered the perfect sacrifice for us when Jesus gave up his life. And we receive full forgiveness and eternal life when we believe in Jesus. God will wipe away all our sins because Jesus' blood is greater than our wrongdoing. Anyone who calls on the name of Jesus asking for forgiveness will be forgiven forever. I say forever because there's nothing you can do that quote-unquote costs more than what Jesus paid. So of course that brings us back to our original question. If Christians no longer need to sacrifice an animal to atone for their sin, what are we supposed to sacrifice? Now I explained in my last episode that Jesus fulfilled the old covenant law on our behalf. So our life in Christ is different than the life Jews had under the law. We as believers in Jesus Christ are members of the new covenant. This is a covenant of grace. We are not earning God's favor through what we do. We have his favor because of Jesus Christ. The life of a Christian is one of receiving from God. Now, you may not have been taught this in church, but this is what the Bible says. The Christian life isn't one of doing, but one of receiving. It isn't a life of striving. It is a life of rest. A Christian is daily receiving from Christ's fullness, grace upon grace. The Bible says we are God's children. And as children, we are completely dependent on what he provides for us. So with that line of thinking, what could we possibly give to God that would make a proper sacrifice? We're no longer offering sacrifices for our sins. And we are receiving from God everything we need. So this idea of sacrifice in order to earn God's favor by giving up something we have to prove our loyalty is not biblical. So what are we supposed to offer up to God? David once said he would not give to God something that cost him nothing. That's a noble sentiment. But we have to keep in mind something very important, something that David himself understood. We have nothing that hasn't been given to us. When we so-called give something to God, we are only giving back something he has first provided. It was his in the first place, and it remains his even when we have it. But what has God given us? 
In a word, he has given us our lives. In my last episode, I scolded teachers who claimed we have to lose our lives to be worthy of Christ. And I explained that Christ gave up his life for us first. In Christ, we have a new life. Our old life is dead and gone, and our true life is in Christ. So we can gladly let go of what we thought our life was supposed to be, because we're already dead. Our true life is one where we fellowship with God. We walk with Him. We are guided by Him. And we do the things He is leading us to do. This is a life devoted to God. Because we don't have any other life apart from Him, do we? So in that frame of mind, what are we offering up as a sacrifice? Paul tells us something that's a bit of a paradox in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He writes, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Your Bible might say it is your spiritual act of worship. The apostle is urging us to give our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, I call this a paradox because we already learned that a sacrifice is something that dies on our behalf. But in Christ, we don't offer up those kinds of sacrifices. As we've learned, Jesus is our Passover lamb that has already died and risen again. Unlike every other person in the world, we don't have to kill something to be right with God or to get something we need or want. Instead, God killed and buried our old life. Paul says we have been crucified with Christ and our old life was buried with him in baptism. So we are already dead. The sacrifice, so to speak, has already been made. Today, we are offering a living sacrifice to God. That's something very different. And Paul says that is our very bodies. As I said, a Christian's life is one devoted to God. Remember, devoted is a word related to sacrifice. But we don't kill ourselves for God. Instead, our entire lives are already devoted to Him. Every breath we take is from God. So you need to understand your success in life, your hopes and your dreams, your goals, everything that you want to achieve will all be accomplished by Christ. We are depending on him the way a branch depends on the vine. You cannot expect to do anything or accomplish anything apart from his guidance. See, before you came to Christ, you could try to do things apart from Christ. It didn't really work out that well, did it, because you were marred by sin and spiritual darkness. But now that you're in Christ, if you believe in Jesus Christ, there's no part of your life that isn't in Him. Just like that branch connected to the vine, you're drawing your life, your sustenance, your just ability to wake up in the morning from Jesus. Everything good in your life comes from Jesus. So when I say success, hopes, and dreams... I'm talking about what you want to accomplish in this life, whatever it is. It's not going to happen apart from Christ. And this is a part of what it means to be a living sacrifice. Now, I may have heard some preachers say it this way. Because Jesus saved you, now you must live for him. Right? And they turn it into a burden. Jesus gave up everything for you. Now you got to give up everything for him. And in that statement, there is implied a threat. If you don't live for him every waking moment then somehow you are disobeying God, you're in sin, God's mad at you, and maybe he even punish you. But what does it mean to live for Christ? How are we expected to do that? 
Because I promise you those very preachers who were hitting you over the head with that kind of legalism never bothered to explain to you what it means to live for Christ. Unless they said something like, living for Christ means some painful ordeal, giving up things you enjoy or love, or going to the ends of the earth to be a missionary. That's the only way you live for Christ. And many Christians assume that if we live for Christ, every waking moment must be some kind of religious act or experience. And of course, that means some kind of self-denial or pain. I must not be sacrificing to God unless I'm a missionary in some faraway country. Or I'm not sacrificing for God unless I give up everything that I like or care about. Unless I enter full-time ministry instead of having another kind of job. And if you're being honest, that's probably how you think that's what it means to follow Christ. And since most of us aren't missionaries or full-time pastors or aren't wanting to be in pain or living in the desert somewhere in some self-denying lifestyle, you assume you're not properly living for God, so you're walking around all day with this sense of guilt because you're not doing what these preachers said you were supposed to do, which is something they don't even do. But answer me this. If everyone was a missionary, who, who is going to be left here in America serving God? Who's going to be a witness to your neighbors and to your family and to your friends who don't know Christ? And if everyone was in full-time ministry as a pastor, who's out there working other jobs, being a light to people working at the grocery store or working at a law firm or working at a construction site? So all those jobs are just for the unbelievers and Christians have to be in full-time ministry to really be serving God? Of course not. You know that's not true. And if living for God means you give up anything you enjoy, how are you supposed to live your life? I promise you, you're not going to get very far if you give up food, sleep, friendship, coffee, or those other things that are part of your normal everyday life. Which, by the way, were given to you by God as blessings. You need to remember what Paul said. We are a living sacrifice to God. That means we don't kill for him, but we live for him. Meaning, we need to live live our lives if we are to live for Christ. The only exception is you need to do it without indulging in those old sinful things that once were a part of your life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, everything we do, we do for the glory of God. He says whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do for the glory of God. That includes everything. You don't have to become a missionary to truly serve Christ. Now, if you want to be a missionary, if you feel called to be a missionary, then go do it. Amen. But that's not the only way we serve Christ. Every single member of the body of Christ can and should and is serving him in the life they have right now, bringing glory to God in every little thing you do. So if you're a mother, you are mothering for the glory of God. If you are a businessman, you're doing business for the glory of God. If you are a student, you get the idea. This is how we are living sacrifices. If we define living sacrifices as being people who are doing everything for the glory of God, then what does that look like? We could say, well, I'm, you know, doing this business for the glory of God. That means I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. Well, it's more than that. To do something for the glory of God means you are depending on him when you do it. If you want to glorify God as a mother, that means you need to depend on Christ to give you the love, wisdom, patience, and so on to be that mother that glorifies God. You cannot glorify God in your life depending on your own strength. Because how, how is that glorifying to God? Because you're doing it in your own power, which means you could boast that you did it. 
But the Bible says, he who boasts or glories, let him boast in the Lord. Meaning, you're going to glorify God and do great things in your life to honor God, but it's not going to be in your own power. You glorify God, believe it or not, when you draw your strength from him. You don't glorify God by doing things in your own power. Jesus said, John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. So if you want to be a living sacrifice to God, if you want to glorify God in everything you do, it requires you to be reliant on him to do those things. A living sacrifice depends on God for his or her life. That is how we glorify him, by relying on him for everything. That means every day is an opportunity for you to rest in the strength and power that God will give you. So when a challenge comes at work, you don't have to sit back and think about, okay, how do I fix this problem with my coworker and and properly follow these rules? And you have to sit there and figure it out. No, you go, Christ, you are with me. You are in me. I am one of your people. I'm a child of God. So you have the answer for this problem. Please give me the wisdom. Give me the right words to say to handle this problem. And this is true in almost every area of our life. The problem is, as normal people, we quickly forget that that's how our life is supposed to be, that we turn to him for help. There have been several instances recently in my life where I've lost something. This is a small example, but it works. So I lost at one point uh, a wire to charge a device, and then I lost a, a putty knife that I needed for some project and a few other things. It's normal. We all miss things. And truth be told, when I start looking, The last thing on my mind is God. I'm just going on automatic mode. I'm sure you do this too. Where I'm just looking through all the boxes and drawers and closets looking for this stuff. But every time recently I stopped and said, Oh Lord, please help me find this thing. In a matter of seconds, a thought comes to my mind and I remember the last place I put it. With that charging cable, I I was looking everywhere and I stopped and said, Lord, please help me find this thing. And then in a few seconds later, it almost like the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, what about this box up in your closet where you keep all your wires? And at first I thought, well, no, that's for computer wires. I don't put charging cables there. But I realized, wait, let me check. And that's where the wire was. And this short time later, a day or so later, I'm looking for that putty knife and I'm in my garage with all my tools and I'm checking all the, the toolboxes and everything. And, I'm like, and then I stop and say, God, I don't know where this is. Please help me find it. And then I remember the last time I used it, and I realized, oh, I kept it with this the spackle, and then I checked that cabinet, and it was right there. And you might be saying, Adam, well, that's nice. God can help you find missing things, but I've got kids that need to be disciplined. I've got a big project at my job. I have, all, I have ministered to all these people. I have to figure this out myself. No, you don't. That's the point. Even in small things, we can look to God and ask for his help. Now, why wouldn't he help us in the big things too? This is what it means to bring glory to God, to be a living sacrifice, to do things that honor him. And the best way we honor him is by looking to him and depending on him for his grace to provide what we need. Now, you may be thinking, okay, Adam, that's all well and good. But sacrifice still means to to kill something, right? I've heard that all my life as a Christian. We must sacrifice for the Lord. So is there anything that we should kill or sacrifice biblically as Christians? Well, let's take a look at that. Remember, the first thing that was sacrificed 
was our old life in Christ. Paul says in Galatians 2 that he was crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. So when Jesus died, he offers himself up for us. We also were, our old life, our old nature was crucified with him. And that old person was buried in baptism. Paul says this in Romans 6. So the part of you that needed killing or sacrificing was already killed when you believed in Jesus. But that dead man wants to come back from the dead. The old man wants to return like a zombie. He wants to rise from the grave and drag you back to all those old ugly things you used to do. Now that's a metaphor, of course. What's dead is dead. But in your mind, you sometimes forget that you are a new person. You still have a memory of those old, of old things and old lifestyles and old desires. Plus, you are in a world under the influence of Satan, which is always urging you, calling you to go indulge in sin. Your physical body, what the Bible calls the flesh, is unable on its own to discern between good things and bad things. Your mind or your heart is a part of your flesh, your earthly nature. That's what the Bible teaches. And it's being renewed. It's learning the difference between good and evil, truth and lies. But your physical body, when it gets weak and run down, it wants to do what feels good. And that often is sin. So your own earthly power, intelligence, or ability to resist temptation will always fall short. So the Bible says we need to put to death those old desires that want to come back. We are changed people, but we still have the potential to indulge in those old sins, and we have the memory of it, and the world around us is tempting us. So we live in a daily experience where we have to put to death those old desires. Paul describes this in the next verse in Romans chapter 12. He just said, be a living sacrifice. In verse 2, he says this, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove... What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? So just after Paul says living sacrifice, he warns we must not be conformed or shaped into the world. As I said, the world is under the influence of Satan, and this world, our human society, will keep trying to deceive you and tempt you and drag you back into old, destructive, sinful patterns. But you are a new person. You're not that old sinner anymore. You're a child of God, born again, if you've received Christ. So it's not so much that the old man is trying to claw back and get you. It's that you still have those old memories and desires, and your physical body is just too weak to resist temptation on its own. Eventually, you'll go weak enough and kind of run down enough that you'll indulge in those old things, whatever it is. The enemy is the one who will try to convince you you're still that old sinner. And he wants you to think it's, you have no power or no ability to actually resist sin, so you might as well just give up. So Paul is saying here, the victory over this process is the renewing of our minds. Our minds are renewed by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And by the way, this is why Satan right now is fighting so hard against the Bible. There are many Christians you might run into on social media who are coming up with these idiotic arguments trying to claim that the Bible isn't the Word of God. Gee, why do you think they're doing that? It's so that you won't turn to God's word for strength and guidance for God to renew your mind through his precious word. Now, if you do believe God has given us the Bible and it is his word, Satan will then try to dismiss the role of the Holy Spirit. He'll make you think you have to obey the word of God in your own power. 
you read the Bible where it says, you know, speak truthfully to your neighbor, and you're like, well, I can't lie anymore. I always have to speak the truth. And you think you have to do that in your own ability. But eventually, your own natural willpower will run out, and the temptation to lie will become too great, and then you'll stumble, and then you'll feel condemned, and, and Satan will come and say, you see, you're a terrible Christian. Who are you to say you follow Christ? Because you can't obey the Bible on your own. The Bible is alive, and as you read it and receive it by faith, it is transforming your mind. And when you make the choices each day to obey God, you're not doing it in your own power. You're relying on the Holy Spirit who is at work in your life. So you need both the God's written word and the living Spirit of God within you so that you can live this life of a living sacrifice. Jesus said we worship God in spirit and in truth. That's what that means. But we do kill something. But it's not ourselves. We killed the old ways of thinking and living that were once part of us before we came to Christ. We are new beings in Jesus, but we still have the memory of those old sins. And as I said, the world will keep coming up with new ways to trip you up into those old sins or even new sins. Your body, your human nature is not powerful enough to resist, which is why you still stumble from time to time. But God is the one at work within you. He's renewing your mind by the Spirit, by the Word. And He's the one who will give you the power by the Holy Spirit to kill those old desires. And this is what the New Testament means when it says we crucify the flesh. We are putting to death those thoughts and desires that oppose the truth. But how do we put them to death? By starving them to death, by not indulging in those old ways. So you could say this is a kind of sacrifice, putting to death those old thoughts and desires from our life before Christ. And I wouldn't argue with anyone who says that, that this is a kind of sacrifice. But we must remember we don't do this in our own power, but by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God. And so finally, there is one more thing that some call sacrifice. And this might be the most common way the word is used amongst Christians. You may have heard at some point in your life testimonies from a missionary or a pastor where they had to give up something for God. There have been many people throughout church history who were once uh, wealthy, successful business people, uh, popular in the world and parts of secular society. But God called them to walk away from that life and from a career or from a business to enter full-time ministry or to serve him in some way. And they may have testified that they were struggling with this at first, but they ultimately decided it was better to give up that career or that life in exchange for the joy of preaching the gospel and serving the Lord. So are there times when God calls someone to give up something like that to serve him? Well, there could be a few scenarios where this type of thing is going on. Chiefly speaking, God might lead someone to sacrifice something, something that was good, but has become an idol. Remember us talking about false gods. An idol is something, often good, that we've turned into this false god in our hearts and minds. It's something that we've become so uh, preoccupied with that it has replaced Christ to some extent in our heart. We think this thing is the, is the substance that's going to give us something that only could come from God. Our sense of identity, our comfort, our security, anything that we know can only come through Christ. We think this thing is going to provide it. And that kind of false God could come in the form of a hobby, a career, even a, some kinds of relationships. And as we're growing in Christ, we may learn or realize that something in our life has to be removed because it's become an opportunity to sin. 
And that might mean a change in our life. Now, in some cases, the thing can't be removed from our lives because it's something that's important. Like a friendship or a ministry or maybe even a spouse or child. In these cases, what needs to be sacrificed is a mindset where we've turned that thing into a false god. The example might be a parent looking to their child for something that they can only get from God. They're trying to get a sense of purpose or identity or love from the child that the child can't provide. So in this case, the parent can't, you know, get rid of their child, right? That's not the solution. But they need to repent of those feelings or thoughts that have turned this child or maybe their family or spouse into an idol. They need to recognize the lies they were believing that has made them look at their children in the wrong way. And this, of course, requires the Word of God to expose those lies and the Holy Spirit who brings grace and transformation so we can let go of those lies and properly love our children the right way and looking to Jesus to provide our purpose, identity, love, and so forth. But like I said, there are things that we might cut out entirely so they could no longer serve as a false god. I remember a classmate I knew in college who had admitted physical fitness had become a false god in her life. And she had realized she had become so obsessed with exercise and getting the perfect fitness like the people I talked about earlier. But she was a believer when she realized that she sacrificed this activity so it would no longer cause her to sin and have these types of thoughts. Now she still stayed healthy, of course, but she had to give up a certain pattern, a certain activity that contributed to an attitude where she was drawing her security and sense of value from her fitness instead of from Christ. And you might notice that this kind of sacrifice is not that much different than what we were talking about earlier. These idols are a part of our old life that needs to be uh, stayed dead. They might be good things, but when they become a temptation, we need to make a change so that it no longer causes us to stumble. But is there a scenario where a Christian might say they sacrificed something for God? But it's not a sinful thing, it's not an idol or a false god. Like I mentioned in the testimony, uh, this is something when God asks them to make a change in their life, which from outward appearances looks like a big sacrifice, like giving up a job to go to the mission field. We know Paul did that very thing, we see in scripture. He walked away from his career trajectory that was going to make him a great influential rabbi in Israel in order to preach the gospel. When we see in the book of Acts, he was mentored by a very popular, well-known Jewish rabbi, and he was on his way to become a major player, so to speak, in the Jewish world at the time. He explains this in Philippians, in fact, about all the, the opportunities and privileges afforded to him to make him some great ruler. But he gladly gave it all up. All the wealth and prestige that would have come from that, the respect of all the great leaders of Israel, in order to know Christ and to preach his word. He went from being a a celebrated, prized rabbi amongst the Jewish people to being one of the most hated people by unbelieving Jews. The book of Acts shows us how they slandered him, spoke against him, opposed his work, beat him almost to death in front of the temple, and then had him arrested by Rome, and while in prison by Rome, they conspired to murder him. But Paul says he gladly made this sacrifice it was even, wasn't even painful to him. He called those old things he gave up dung, garbage, in comparison to what he had in Christ. 
So from our perspective, certain things might look like sacrifices in the natural, but those who make them might not even consider them sacrifices. Well, how could that be? Because Christ is so much greater. The love, grace, joy, peace, hope, and everything they have in Christ is so much more precious than anything they are giving up. In reality, this is the opposite of what the world does when they sacrifice to their false gods. As you said, people will sacrifice good things to achieve some goal they think is more important. But that goal is often a false god who cannot give them what they really want or need. But in Christ, it's different. We are giving up something infinitely less valuable than what we have in Christ. Fellowship with Jesus is greater than anything in this world you can dream of. Knowing Christ, living for Him, telling others about Him, that is so much better than what the world can offer us. In the end, people who make these great sacrifices for the Lord don't even consider them sacrifices because Christ is so much greater. You might see how this is a part of being a living sacrifice. As we live in Christ, we will sometimes give up things to be closer to Him. But those are hardly painful because Christ is so much better. Now, you'll probably encounter Christians, including preachers, who will continue to suggest following Christ is a sacrifice, that you are not worthy of the Lord unless you are suffering in some way, that your hopes and dreams in this life are sinful and you need to give them up in order to follow Christ. They might even say your problems are part of carrying your cross, part of God's plan to teach you or to sanctify you. But the truth is, life in Christ is one of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives us life, life more abundantly. In Him we have rest for our souls. Our suffering comes from the enemy who is influencing this sinful world. God is allowing it, yes, but so that we can turn to Him for deliverance, so that we could turn to Him to receive healing, help, and all that we need. The Christian life is not one of doing, but one of receiving. It's not one of suffering, but one of healing. It's not one of striving, but one of beholding, beholding the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. We love him because he first loved us. We can give up our lives gladly because he gave up his life first. We don't sacrifice anything to be saved. Jesus is our final sacrifice who saves us. Because he has given us life, breath, and everything, we can gladly make ourselves his living sacrifice. The Gospel Talker podcast is written and produced by Adam Casolino. Visit us online at gospeltalker.substack.com.